the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. As we head into our second hour this Friday, it is a delight to bring back for his triumphant return the missing man, Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. He's not been missing in action. He's been full of action. It's just uh, we haven't been able to get him on our Fridays because of how active and busy he's been. Pete, welcome back. It's so good to have you with us, sir. And it's so great to be back, Seth. Great to be back and uh, end the week with you. It's been so long. We've, I think, even changed our top of the hour theme music since you've last been here. So, <laughs> we're yes, now, I heard that. Yes, heard we're that. open up. We're opening up with a version of Birdland um, these days. Yes. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Taking taking it back to your ska days a little bit, or at least moving That's it right. more in that direction. I suppose. Maynard Ferguson. <laughs> I saw him play that song live. Oh, did sure. you really? Did oh, you? Really? For sure. Fantastic. Oh yeah, I was a I was a real marching band, some would say geek, but I thought, you know, fairly cool person <laughs> back in my high school days. And uh I was a huge Maynard Ferguson fan and uh he plays a, a version of Birdland which is just he, he would open up his incredible. show. Joe Zawinul was in his band before he went to Weather Report. Uh oh, yeah, and yeah, uh yeah. And uh, they did the, uh, I think, the original version, but Maynard would open most of his concerts with it. And yeah. the version we open up with is some uh, is uh, 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 some friends of mine I grew up with, which are just stellar musicians here, two brothers, Thano and Dimitri Sonis. But we can talk Maynard Ferguson all day if you want to, Pete. <laughs> I think I know you more. Might lose your uh, I, I probably have about ten of his songs in my bumpers, and oh, um, my goodness. I have one of his horns. Uh, and uh, oh, he, wow. he's the reason I stopped playing trumpet. Actually, um, <laughs> yeah, once you heard him, it, well, it yeah, fun. no, that's right. I mean, I've heard this yeah. was some people do golf this way. Um, yeah. If I couldn't play like that, what's the point? And I know that yeah. that no musical. Some music instructors say that was the problem with Maynard Ferguson is is that you know yeah. his assault on the trumpet was just not natural. And uh, yeah. and uh, yeah. as Doc yeah. Severinsen liked to say, you know, you make more money playing in the bars than above them over your lifetime. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, I love excellence. I, lo- I love excellence, which is one of the reasons I, I love you, sir. Well, it's great to be back with you. The Maynard Ferguson of public policy, Pete Peterson. <laughs> I love it. Maybe so. I was talking Maybe to a mutual so. friend of ours, uh, Russ Shubin, the other day. And, oh, yeah? Yeah, we were talking about, you know, the issue of crime being so prevalent again. And really, when you um, when I thought about the history, if I have it right, the founding of your school, the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, being with Jim Wilson, James Q. Wilson, right. who was the nation's yep. – uh, uh, premier criminologist, the Maynard Ferguson right. of crime, if you will, uh, studi- studying it, really going back to the 60s and 70s. What was his major book, Thinking About Crime? I remember reading it in grad school and so many things since. You right. guys you guys were built on the shoulders of this issue, weren't you, in a sense? We were in that sense. I mean, uh, you're absolutely right to say that we consider uh, Dr. Wilson one of our founding fathers of the school, um, and he was very pivotal in uh, coming out from 
uh, Harvard, where he had been in, uh, teaching at their Kennedy School for uh, a couple decades, but he came out to California and um, was was very much involved in helping to create this unique curriculum that we have that balances the great books and studies of American history with the quantitative aspects of public policy, which, of course, Dr. Wilson was was so well versed in. But his his studies on on crime and uh, what he's best known for um, is his work while done while at Harvard uh, around what he uh, was has been called the broken windows. Theory, yes, right. Was really at the foundation of the the turnaround in policing uh, in the city of New York, um, which uh, with um, uh, really uh, disciples, if you will, like uh, Bill Bratton, who was mm-hmm. commissioner in New York under. Giuliani came out to Los Angeles and brought many of those techniques to Los Angeles. Um, but here we are in 2023, and it seems like we're having to relearn those fairly common sense, um, but in many ways profound lessons that Dr. Wilson taught us. He would often say that if if uh, a public policy theory doesn't the common sense test, then chances are it's probably going to be wrong. And this idea that if you don't engage in fighting crime at the so-called lower levels, that you stand the chance of uh, seeing crime once again at higher levels is certainly what we're witnessing uh, here, uh, especially in California and cities like Los Angeles and, and San Francisco. It gets worse and worse, in other words, uh, even starting from what people might think is silly or innocuous or small, this was the notion applied in New York, wasn't it, that even something as simple as graffiti on the train could not be tolerated because it breeds a certain uh, level of impunity and a certain level of numbness, uh, a certain level yeah. of numbness to um, to, a, to a disorder, getting used to disorder, if you will, or getting used to a, a level of decadence that just, if you don't nip it in the bud, will grow and grow and end up in South Central L.A. or end up in what every weekend, like it looks like Chicago is now going through, ends up being, right? Well, and you see people beginning to vote with their feet, uh-huh. right? We've, I, um, especially here in California, the the um, surveys have just come out that um, San Francisco has lost a greater percentage of their population in the last two years than any other metropolitan area in the country. Uh, the county of Los Angeles in the last two years, this data is just coming out, uh, has lost half a million residents mm-hmm. in the last two years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these these decisions, which are public policy decisions, That's right. these are choices that we're making in state governments, municipal governments, um, are ones that have real reverberations in the decisions people make about where where they live. And certainly you're in a place out there in the Phoenix Scottsdale area where we're sending a bunch of Californians on a a pretty regular, regular basis. But it's because of these decisions around what could variously be called the the quality of living or the quality of life type issues that, uh, that we seem to be again, going back to the seventies in so many ways when Wilson was really bringing these, these theories to the fore. That's that's what's so curious to me, Pete, about the whole field of public policy in and of itself, you know, um, that we have to keep relearning that which works. And I don't understand it, frankly. 
no one has been able to explain it to me, perhaps, is the better way to put it, uh, in a way that I understand it. There's this interesting lineage of criminology. Um, Jim Wilson, I think, learned a lot from a guy named Edward Banfield at Harvard. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. You know the Banfield work, rioting yep. for fun and profit uh, in the 60s was his controversial <clears throat> was his controversial thesis. And though perhaps not a classroom student of his, uh, James, James Wilson was so much the teacher of the, the great criminologist among us now, Heather MacDonald, uh, mm-hmm. who's carried forward his stuff. It seems we only can tolerate one or two public scholars on this <laughs> at a time. <laughs> but we do deploy it for a while. And then we let up as if we have to recreate the world all over again somehow. We don't learn yeah, the lesson I, once and for all. Yeah, and I, I think some of this is about taking for granted the real policy decisions and uh, funding support that needs to happen mm-hmm. and um, really kind of environment setting that needs to happen. Um, you know, it's it's sometimes said that that cultures are hard to build but easy to break. Right. And, um, you know, these decisions, when you look at, say, a New York City and see what's happened there over the last number of uh, years, you, you, I remember a time living out there uh, back in the 70s when the 70s and 80s were really a time where you just, you, you just thought that that was going to be in a linear fashion that New York was just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Right. And then Giuliani comes along and um, uh, Bratton comes along putting together, putting into practice these theories of, of Wilson's using technology in new ways. And over the course of the next several decades and carried on by Bloomberg, um, you know, I, I really do think that people began to take for granted what it took to get New York back to a mm-hmm. place where people like to go to. And then, of course, we've seen over these last few years that you can lose it all in a matter of in a matter of years. Let me pick up on that when we come back, Pete. Peterson is our guest. We'll go out with a little Maynard Ferguson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Having um, a great discussion and a little fun with Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. For all the craziness in academia, this is the smart, the normal, and the successful school you want to go to if you want to take a serious view and get into serious uh, application of public policy. Pete, let me stay on the academic part for a moment, and then we'll come back to the uh, -the on-the-ground part of this, if I can. Uh, yeah. with you on, on, on things we learn and things we don't learn, things we think we've learned. You know, <clears throat> we're going to get into this discussion of, of Randy Weingarten's testimony, too, uh, in a few yeah. moments. I see you tweeted a lot about that this week. Good time yeah. for me to mention your Twitter handle, uh, Pete for CA, Pete for CA, uh, at Pete for CA. Um, when we seem to have learned something, there there's there's this idea that it's solved once and for all, as we were talking about in the previous segment. But then, too, there's this there's this thing that did take place in San Francisco this week that I wanted to run through you, because mm-hmm. after years and years of people begging Gavin Newsom to do something, the mayor to do something, he finally deployed the National Guard um, mm-hmm. to help deal 
with the fentanyl crisis. I hope it's not too late. It, it's awfully late. Yeah. And it's and 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 a lot of the people in San Francisco who have been begging him were kind of celebrating that he was finally doing something. You know, we thought fentanyl was the worst thing. The last two years, people were saying there's nothing worse than fentanyl. Son of a gun, and I want to say a different word, there is something worse. Because we haven't done anything about fentanyl, we're now seeing this thing on the streets you may have heard called Trank, which is animal tranquilizer, the zombie drug, right? Uh, Turning people into zombies and putting holes in their body. You don't stop these things at the broken windows level, whether it's with the human or the property kind of crime. It will get worse. There is worse to go, as Shakespeare Shakespeare put it. You can't say this is the worst if you can say this is the worst in King Lear, yeah? Yeah, and of course, the story of San Francisco is notable for a, a few different reasons. Of course, the governor was the former mayor. Of yeah, right, right. Um, and he has a lot of friends there in that town, and that remains one of the more progressive cities in America. But it is showing the limits yeah. of progressive policy. Right. Uh, we're seeing that certainly in the response with the National Guard being trotted out. But I think it's also important to see that uh, a really once great American city is collapsing right. before our eyes. Right. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle of all newspapers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. has had an ongoing drumbeat of pieces really describing the fact that San Francisco is really at a tipping point. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the described in social science terms when analyzing um, land use uh, policy, the doom loop. Mm. And the doom loop happens when First, businesses leave. Mm-hmm. That takes the residents with them. Mm-hmm. That takes the tax base with them. Mm-hmm. And then you have no funding to provide even minimal public services, mm-hmm. whether it's public safety or education or so forth. And as I mentioned before, no one has lost a greater percentage, not number, but a greater percentage of their population in the last two years than San Francisco has. And with that, the tax base that's leaving is also really has created an environment where the city is not able to respond to these public safety challenges and they keep getting worse and worse and worse. What we're seeing in downtown San Francisco, I don't know if you saw the the story recently of uh, the tech company Salesforce. Mm -hmm. Uh, Salesforce had their major headquarters right in downtown Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, I'm sorry, right by the Embarcadero, the Mm -hmm. ferry terminal, really... Uh, just a beautiful area of that city. Well, they're basically going made the decision to eat mm-hmm. somewhere in the neighborhood of five to six hundred million dollars on leases because they're no longer going to be utilizing the office spaces uh, and buildings that they have been leasing downtown. So you see this happening in San Francisco that was really precipitated originally by COVID where people realized they didn't have to come into the office, in some cases couldn't come into the office. They made decisions about working remotely. And once again, you kind of take for granted that a city like San Francisco is always going to be kind of self-sustaining and, you know, a, a tech hub and capital, and there's always going to be this this great wealth there. Well, we're witnessing really the flight of that wealth and that tax base. And really what we're seeing right now is a city that's, that's really on the precipice. The funny thing about it, funny is the wrong word, ironic or forgotten thing about it might be the better way to put it, 
is when you see these these companies closing, I think the story we were talking about maybe a couple weeks ago was a Whole Foods, a major Whole Foods was closing up in San Francisco. And the head of the that store said, we can't keep our employees safe. And there's something yep. about that I'll never forget. You, you would have naturally thought the sentence would say, we can't keep our customers safe. They can't even keep their yeah. employees safe. Now, it's easy maybe for people to say, well, these big companies, these multi-million or billion dollar companies, too bad they can't uh, operate where they want to or in a, in a certain area. But I got to tell you, when you hear the progressive call, which I, I think has a tenuous relationship to it in and of itself, about crime and employment, you're not just talking about a tax base. You're talking about jobs, the very right. jobs that these progressive um, leaders say they want more of. Yeah. You're emptying you're, – you're turning, you're turning the city into a wasteland for everything, in other words. Well, and, of course, the kinds of jobs that we would be seeing in a Whole Foods and just a little bit more on that right. story, that Whole Foods had only been open for about a year. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So they, they, you know, Whole Foods does all its analysis of where to build stores. And, you know, obviously they want to put it in places where they, they foresee that that's going to get a lot of foot traffic. They put it in this one area and just within a year realize that we can't sustain um, a store here. And but those are the kinds of jobs, right, that we're thinking about that are at the lower middle class right. and middle class range. Entry level jobs in some companies, respects right? even. Yeah. Right, right. Right. And so back to that progressive discussion where yeah. you know you raised before, these are supposedly right. the citizens right. that right. the progressives are interested right. in protecting. Right. And so both both from the economic standpoint but also from the public safety standpoint, these progressive policies are utterly failing. And I mean, at a at a even larger level, beyond the municipal level, this also takes us back to this issue of the importance of jobs and employment, regardless, uh, as right. as an important thing to keep the indolent from being indolent and to keep the indolent from being indigent. Uh, actually, yep. and 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 when you see, you're right. These beautiful cities, San Francisco. You know, 15 years ago, I loved it. I loved it 15 yeah. years ago. It's. You're right. It's fast how how it it can happen real quickly. And it's not just San Francisco. I mean, we can do a litany of cities from Portland to Seattle, uh, Los Angeles. I was talking at a party. I may have told you the story. It just blows me away how easily people will say at a party. I ask them where they're from. Well, I'm from L.A. Really? Where in L.A.? Well, so-and-so. You wouldn't go there anymore. You wouldn't go there anymore. We just say that dismissively as if there are no-go places because there are no-go places. Let me take a quick break, Pete Peterson. We'll be right back. Pete Peterson is the dean at uh, one of the great schools in the world, one of the best in America, the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. You're serious about graduate work in public policy? This is the serious place to go. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson show. Pete, I was thinking about a line from, um, I don't know if I can quote Rep Butler anymore if we're allowed to or not, but he has, he has the line that what people forget is it's just as uh, easy to make money building up society as it is tearing down society. And, mm-hmm. and, and what we're watching, maybe not people making money in the destruction of these cities, but we are watching it with a with a blasé or an insouciant attitude where we're just watching the countdown of cities disappearing. Once great places, as you say, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, Chicago, the city of broad shoulders, um, you know, yeah. Chicago tugging at my sleeve. And, of course, New York City again. I mean, I don't know sure. how much capacity 
for self-renewal we have anymore. Um, you can do it a couple of times. 70s New York City was different from 90s New York City, but we're back to look, having it look like the 70s New York City. I don't know if we can restore and repair places like San Francisco as far down the hole they go. I just don't know. I, I'd like to be an operational optimist. And, of course, you're teaching students that they can roll up their sleeves and get to work. But it's going to take an awful lot of work. And the tragedy is it didn't have to get this bad. Well, and and also I think it's important putting this in context about going back to this doom loop scenario. Yeah, yeah. And what, what happened, what's happening right now in San Francisco was precipitated by COVID and these remote work policies. Yeah. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle actually uh, had had a story on their front page about a year ago that they were using key card data and able to find out how many people were actually coming into the office spaces in downtown San Francisco. Not not the leases, right? If you look at many typical office buildings in downtown San Francisco, many of them are leased. Mm-hmm. But the pe- the number of people who are actually coming in was somewhere in the neighborhood of 50%. Wow. And so what that portends for the future is once those leases come up for renewal, or in the case of the sales force, they may get out of a lease early because they realize that their employees mm-hmm. are no longer using that space. Mm-hmm. Now, the many of the commentators I've been following that have been looking at the San Francisco situation compare it to downtown Manhattan uh, after 9-11, which also had kind of a, this one of these doom loop yep. scenarios right. where after 9-11, businesses left. Wasteland. Uh, yeah. Some of them went across the river to mm-hmm. Jersey City. Mm-hmm. Some of them went out to other areas in, in uh, metropolitan New York area. But what's happened there is there's been a transformation going from offices to residential. Mm. And if you go to lower Manhattan today, where the Freedom Tower is, uh, really there's been a really radical transformation of what had been office buildings into residential buildings. The difference that I think we're, we're seeing, unfortunately, in a place like San Francisco is there hasn't been a 9-11. Yeah. What there's been in COVID is there's been a radical restructuring of what, of how people work. And people are also realizing that in the cost of living and quality of living trade-off, that they'd much rather go to Oregon or Phoenix Mm -hmm. or Dallas or Austin Mm -hmm. than they would to put up with what many have to put up with in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so... I don't know. I know some are proposing that there be a, a really radical transformation of uh, downtown San Francisco to convert all these office buildings to uh, residential who would, apartments. Who would be able those. to afford it, though? My God. Right. And then the second question is if the public safety issues yeah. are going to be what they are today yeah. Yeah. and the education issues yeah. are going to be what they are today. Who's going to want to put up with it? That's right. We have another mutual friend uh, in uh, Dr. Tevi Troy who told me an observation he had visiting San Francisco about two years ago, something I had never dawned on me to think about. He said when he went there, the thing that struck him in the streets of San Francisco, no children, no children. That's the sign of a failed city, too. That's the sign of a lot of things in a city. And it never dawned on me, no children. Interesting. Well, and, you know, the... uh, fairly recent study came out from the state uh, California's what they call the legislative analyst office essentially mm-hmm. the in-state uh, think tank for mm-hmm. the state legislature mm-hmm. and they looked at in migration out migrations uh, patterns for the last 10 years 
the number one demo, age demographic leaving the state of California were Californians under the age of 18. No. Now, that's not an indication that we have some great runaway problem in California. These are kids within families that are leaving yeah. the state. Yeah. And so what we're seeing in San Francisco is in some ways a microcosm yeah. of what we're seeing really around the state is yeah. that it's become less and less a family-friendly yeah. place, right. both in cost and quality of life. Which is really how you know whether you have a functioning polis or not, somewhere that is exactly. safe for the family. This is in Aristotle's first chapter of his first book on the politics. Let me take a break. Let's turn to education a little bit uh, Let's uh, talk about what we learned and what we unlearned from Randy Weingarten this week. Pete mm. Peterson is my guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have Dean Pete Peterson with us uh, from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, where he is also the Braun Family Dean's Chair and the Senior Fellow at their Davenport Institute. Uh, Pete, you and I have lamented in the past historical history revision, revisionist history. Uh, it's amazing how how close how how short that window is now becoming. Uh, we're revising history practically in real time. You and I were both struck, I saw from your Twitter feed, by Randy Weingarten's testimony. To listen to her, you would have thought she was Jennifer Sake, uh, wanting to get those schools opened <laughs> right. as soon as damn possible. What the heck are you doing with these closed schools? I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we laugh, but it's obviously just utterly tragic. Yeah. And you're so right to say the revisionism yeah. that yeah. Uh, we're, we're witnessing here from... Uh, these officials who really had a hand in really causing significant harm mm -hmm. to uh, the country is uh, really needs to be called out. You know, something else that happened in this past uh, week or 10 days has been the release of this, what they're saying is a 9-11 a, a report style evaluation of COVID mm -hmm. called the COVID, COVID crisis group. Mm -hmm. And I have some there, there's definitely some axe grinding going on with this group of 30 or so uh, scholars and policymakers who came together to write up this report of America's government response to COVID. But one thing that I think bears looking at is they did some comparative analysis to what other countries yeah. uh, did in response to COVID. And on the issue of school closures, yeah. I mean... Same disease, yeah. same set of issues, right? Same species of animal, average, yeah. I mean, the, the the average school closure in America was 77 weeks. Yeah. The average school closure in France was two. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The average school closure in Spain was 15 weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all the while, of course, we are being told, and I tweeted this out from the head of uh, one of uh, the Los Angeles areas. That's the uh, affiliate, by the way, of Randy Weingarten's group, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. That's the AFT right. affiliate down there, Cicely uh, Myers-Cruz or whatever her name is. Yeah, right. 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 No, that's exactly right. Yeah. And so to be told that there's no learning loss, right. uh, that really this was really all done in the best interest of students, um, really needs to continue to be called out because – uh, you're right to say that there's a, some revision, uh, revisionist history being uh, put out there now, 
but there really hasn't been an accounting, maybe aside from the Yunkin gubernatorial election, there hasn't been a a political accounting for the Democrats uh, who, as a party, are much more vested in the public sector unions uh, than the Republicans are. Maybe, maybe the fact that they're revising history and 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 shamed uh, about what it is they actually were saying and stood for <clears throat> is a small piece of victory. I'll tell you who's been good on this: um, a New York Times reporter named David Leonhardt. He had a yeah. he had a piece today going after Randy Weingarten and particularly on. Uh, the notion that, uh, you know, the opening of schools early on was of uh, great concern. He actually writes um, that many other education leaders took a different approach. He mentions what you did in Europe. Many were open in the U.S. Yep. private schools, particularly Catholics, uh, which had modest resources reopened. And yep. then he writes this very interesting sentence. Some people did contract COVID at these schools, but the overall effect on the virus's spread was close to zero. It was yeah. close to zero. Um, the 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 fear mongering was 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 beyond the pale, and so were the things Randy Weingarten was arguing for. It wasn't just safety of teachers. I'm looking at what he writes in the New York Times. You know, some of her concerns for opening the schools, some of her demands before opening the schools, were cancellations of student loan debt. Uh, yeah. yeah, you know, uh, suspension of teacher performance evaluations, limits on student testing, the kinds of things the AFT has been arguing for for 25 years anyway, <laughs> you know, it had nothing to do with COVID. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. This is really an indictment of a significant part of the progressive mm-hmm. movement mm-hmm. and certainly where a lot of the political power is based in public sector Unions. I'll note that we recently posted a video on our own YouTube page. Uh, we had Philip K. Howard out. Oh, yeah. He's got a new book out on questioning the constitutionality of public sector unions. Right. But um, that's a separate conversation, <clears throat> although uh, related in some ways, to what we've endured here as a country. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you and I have talked about on a few occasions, we haven't really fully digested no. the impact. No of school closures. Uh, We can talk about degrees of learning loss, but what we're seeing here in Los Angeles is we're seeing thousands of kids that just about disappeared from the school system. Uh, They don't know where they are, and they're certainly not coming into class on a regular basis. And these are a set of behaviors that began with the school closures. And so we don't really have a have a way right now to to fully comprehend the damage that has been done from school closures. We're missing maybe upwards of a million point three children. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. a lot of kids. Yeah, yeah, that's a and again what that means for them into their teens and twenties, thirties, and beyond. I mean, uh, it is it is mind bending to think about. Uh, an organization that uh, uh, really has precipitated um, these these issues. And again, I hope Leonard is one of many yeah. at the New York Times yeah. and, and other places yeah. where we where people really begin. And, and again, it's got to happen on the progressive side. Of it the does. Aisle. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. To, to call out the role of teachers unions in the closure decisions.
remember something, it was after Katrina, I think, that uh, David Brooks wrote a column about what the rule should be in rebuilding New Orleans. And he said the first rule should be nothing like before. That's the rule. Nothing like before. Yeah. And I wonder yeah. if, you know, back to our original conversation this hour, Pete, uh, you know, I, I just wonder next time something comes and something will come, whether we we have learned this lesson or not, so that we don't do anything like that ever again. It was, I think, Dennis Prager said the worst public policy uh, decision, the lockdowns, the shutdowns, the school closures, the worst public policy decision in the history of America. He may very well be right about that. I think that's a very fair argument, yeah. no doubt. Yeah, Pete, so good to have you back uh, uh, with us. Uh, I love you busy, but I love having you here too, brother. Great to be back with you, Seth. Have a great weekend, sir. You too. I'm Seth Liebson. Be back with a final thought. Thinking about the economy, the bank failures, the uh, recession on the horizon, the inflation and the lies we've been told about that, the stock market volatility, why refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to any of that, not the Fed, not the stock market. It's an investment where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure, collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10 and a quarter percent fixed rate of return. Why Refi is local. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I have. I can tell you, you will not get a sales pitch. You won't be asked to sign a thing. When you meet with the team at Why Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can too. A due diligence approved firm. As I say, you can earn up to 10.25% rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. Really would urge uh, you to take a look at the New York Times' piece, The Long Shadow of COVID School Closures, that David Leonard put out today. He's been very good on this. He alone at the New York Times and he alone in the mainstream media in uh, going after uh, Randy Weingarten's uh, revisionist history here. One of the things he writes, uh, uh, the risks associated with reopening schools may have been unclear in the spring of 2020, but over the course of the summer, now what? remember what Pete said, the average closers were 77 weeks. Is that about a year and a half, about 18 months almost, something like that? Okay, but over the course of the summer, the summer of 2020, evidence increasingly suggested that schools could reopen without accelerating the spread of COVID and that the costs of keeping them closed were steep. I know that to be true because I wrote that column for Fox News with Bill Bennett. I know it to be true because, as Heather MacDonald said uh, last time she was with us talking about COVID a couple months ago, she said everything we needed to know about COVID public policy we knew by the summer of 2020. Uh, Berkeley philosopher, Berkeley philosopher, not a place you would expect to hear someone who um, speaks contra perhaps the teachers' unions, uh, but a Berkeley philosopher quoted here, Professor Dasgupta uh, in the uh, in the New York Times, quote, it is clear that extended school closures were a mistake. They harmed children while having no measurable effect on the pandemic. It is also clear that the teachers unions were the major factor behind the closures. 
All right, Randy. Argue with Berkeley. Argue with David Leonard. Argue with the New York Times. Argue with what we all saw with our own two eyes. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.